Hello everyone and welcome back. I must apologize for the long break uh, between my podcasts, but I want to let you know I'm going to start to step these up a little bit more. In the past uh, few years, I've been busy writing several books. Uh, Some are slowly being published over time, so I'm going to try to focus more on um, the the true crime element of what this podcast and, and what I created it for, which is the investigative science. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today with the podcast. And uh, I want to explore the whole subgenre of uh, what is now being labeled as murder porn that exists in different media platforms. So namely today we're going to be looking at uh, the recent documentary that was on Netflix regarding uh, the death of Elisa Lam. Now, this is a five-episode series. Uh, If you haven't seen it and you want to see it, um, please, you probably shouldn't listen to this because I'm going to tell you some spoilers, but most people are already aware of this tragic case. Why I felt encouraged to pick up the podcast again is I I realized the whole platform of this podcast is to educate individuals who have never worked in criminal investigations um, some of the different issues that you may face when dealing with forensic science or what we see in modern cases and even historical cases. In the past, we have looked at historical cases. But I really got upset watching this. And maybe, uh, maybe I am potentially part of the consumption of these, these series. But watching it, um, I, I felt that in a way the victim was very much objectified in this particular case. Uh, it's a, it's a very, it's a tragic case and it's a very straightforward case in respect to that. But what the, the docuseries showed well, in, a, in a roundabout way, it was really drawn out and could have gone through, in my personal opinion, a lot, a lot more editing uh, if they were going to focus on this particular topic. But uh, was the impact that armchair detectives or internet detectives have on these cases and, and the role that they have in, in mainstream media. Now, one thing I must forewarn you, this is not the first time that armchair detectives have gotten involved in criminal cases. There are several cases where armchair detectives have assisted in keeping cold cases alive and, and telling us new information uh, about cases or, or when you keep a case at the forefront of people's minds, the more you talk about it, the much more likely it's not going to go as cold of a case per se. Because the more attention a case can get, then the more it's on other people's minds where you may have witnesses who may come forward in an ongoing uh, case that you're particularly working. But with that being said, there are some massive dangers in respect to these internet detectives and the role they can play in criminal investigations. I'll give you a perfect example before I start talking about this docuseries. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, The Boston Bomber, right, uh, 2013, uh, the FBI released images, uh, video images from CCTV footage of the the bombers uh, leaving the bag behind before the the, the bags detonated uh, in in respect to that. Now, this is where things get tricky with the armchair detectives and and the role they play. Reddit namely, uh, played a humongous role, I think, tragically, in a set of circumstances that unfolded, the circumstances around the case. And I'll tell you why. Uh, 2013, once these images got put 
in the media. Uh, Reddit specifically was, uh, the way Reddit works is a platform of anonymous users. You create your username, you can go in, you can hide behind this, this wall of you being anonymous uh, in respect to that. So people were chiming in, oh, that looks like so-and-so, that looks like so-and-so. So they were intentionally what they call doxing people online who had nothing to do with the case in respect to that, which is a huge violation now of Reddit's user policy. But at the time, uh, it just happened. Everything was, was unfolding quite quickly with the investigation. They were trying to get as many leads as possible. Uh, people from the online community were even calling the FBI and calling uh, the Boston Police Department with leads and tips and suspects. Uh, so trying to sort through all this information in a critical time uh, when you're working an investigation where there's been uh, something significant as this, it's quite daunting on investigators to say the least. But tragically what happened with this case is an individual online identified or, or thought he identified who the Boston, one of the Boston bombers was. Uh, it was a young student by the name of uh, Sundale, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to say his last name wrong here, uh, Tripothy. Okay, uh, he was 22 years old. He uh, lived in Providence, Rhode Island in respect to that, but he is, was an undergraduate student. He initially turned up missing when all this information started coming out where they were starting to dox him um, online. He was wrongly accused um, uh, on April 15th of, of being one of the bombing suspects to the point that on Reddit they even posted um, images of him, unfortunately. And this young student was having some turmoil in their life and was struggling with other things before this incident occurred to them. Um, tragically, um, he ended up taking his own life as the result of this being wrongly accused uh, of being essentially a terrorist uh, with the Boston bombing um, in respect to that. So this is just one angle of how the internet, while it does have some positive things, it also can be a lynch mob online. And it, it, it can create issues that have detrimental impact upon uh, surviving family members or people not even connected to the case specifically. And this docu-series, going back to the Cecil docu-series, this docu-series specifically uh, looked at one uh, goth metal musician. His name was, I believe, Morbid. And um, some, some of these on, online detectives, they had somehow managed to, that he posted a photo, a social media photo, a year before this incident occurred, before I get into the story, the tragic story of this particular incident. And essentially online, uh, they doxed him, when in reality, he wasn't, even, he wasn't even involved in this case. And this wasn't even a homicide investigation uh, in respect to that. So, you know, he had other issues. Uh, he had to, had to eventually become uh, a pay, inpatient for psychiatric care as a result of these, this online doxing and the way he was treated uh, in respect to that. So falsely accusing people, even if you're behind the guise of a keyboard and a screen, while they may not be real to you, these, these are real people on the other end of these investigations that we have to think about in respect to that. So... Let me get to the point to talk about the docuseries. So you might want to turn it off now if you want to watch it. I don't even know if I want to encourage you to watch this because I, to be honest with my personal opinion, some of my master's students asked me what I thought about it. Um, and I, I thought it was 
absolutely disgusting. I, I thought it was it was it was a horrible way on how she was portrayed. It was a horrible way in in, in how the platform. I think too much of a platform was given to these internet detectives. Now I know that the portion of the docu series was exploring that how the links that these armchair detectives will go to in these cases. But I was I was trying to have a hard time while watching these these series, these docu-series, these episodes, and how everything tied together. I think at one point when I was watching, I was even I was even yelling at my TV. There was a uh, armchair detective who said, I've seen uh, countless autopsy reports, and I've never seen an autopsy report look like that. Well, we can all hold our breath that some lady on the internet who's not an expert, who's not a pathologist, who's not a homicide detective, who's never been a police officer, there's a human error. There was a typo. Uh, that does not mean it's anything suspicious. Uh, going back to my previous podcast, I talked about Occam's razor and how the most logical conclusion typically is the correct conclusion in a case uh, when you're working this. The more complicated things get, sometimes the more things will unravel and you become lost in these cases. And that particularly is what has happened in the Cecil. Now, to give you an idea, it's the Cecil Hotel. Uh, it's in L.A., uh, Long Skid Row. Historically, it was a nice hotel, but obviously over time it had um, not kept, I would dare to say, the standards when the hotel was first created in respect to its aesthetic and also uh, the type of clientele that the Cecil got. Uh, this is where the docuseries, it kind of lost me. Uh, it spent a lot of time talking about Skid Row, which I had no idea how that even connected to this particular case. Uh, to be honest with you, that probably should have been flushed. <laughs> that section should have been flushed in the entire docuseries. But regardless, the whole docuseries evolves around uh, Elisa Lamb. Now, Elisa, give you an idea, she's a young student. Uh, she's a student at the University of, of British Columbia in Vancouver. So from Canada, from, she drove from Canada down to the U.S. She was going on a solo trip, okay? Now, um, Elisa, she has a history of depression and bipolar disorder um, and was on medication for these conditions. And now what the docuseries starts off doing is it, it shows you the clips of Elisa obviously in a psychotic stress, psychotic type of uh, behavior, uh, the way she's acting when she steps onto an elevator. Uh, the, the CCT footage of, of her stepping onto the elevator, she's looking around. Uh, it appears that maybe she's talking to someone. She moves up against the elevator. I will be the first to tell you, and someone who's worked years in policing, if you've ever seen anyone who's had a psychotic break, this is actually not abnormal behavior to observe with anyone at all. Uh, there's been some, some fantasy theories about this, that there was a person outside the elevator or that uh, even in a more paranormal type of sense that she was speaking to ghosts because of the dark history of the hotel. Now, the reality is, tragically and unfortunately, she had slowly stopped taking uh, the required amounts of medication I'm not a psychologist now, mind you, but I do know uh, and I have dealt with individuals in a severe state of psychotic stress. And, and that's exactly what I saw tragically on that video. Eventually, uh, she 
because she was in the state, was fearful for her life, or maybe she perceived or experienced that someone was chasing her. She immediately takes off uh, from the hotel, down the hallway. It is speculated. Uh, there's one or two different ways she could have gotten to the top part of this. She climbs up to the roof of the Cecil Hotel where there's these big water tanks where the water is collected and used uh, for showers and things along those lines. Now, she turns up missing. She was reporting to her family uh, every day. Family became concerned because they haven't heard from her and they knew where she was at. Now, prior to this, what the docuseries didn't even bring about until the tail end, the last episode, uh, the way they presented information, it was presented in a way to drag it out. They, they weren't presenting the actual facts of the case, uh, which I think is, should be the first responsibility of any docuseries. I, I know that there's the, the theatrics behind it, and it, it's supposed to be entertaining. But this is where things get dangerous. So uh, she actually was in one room of the hotel and was eventually moved because her behavior was so disruptive. Uh, in respect to this break that she's having. So there were other people prior to her turning up missing who had stated to the hotel staff, you know, this, this girl, her, her room was a state, uh, you know, that she had, was going through something, was acting up. Uh, so they even had to move her rooms uh, out of the room she was currently in because it was currently set up like a, a hostel kind of situation where it was bunk beds and, and they were shared with multiple people. Uh, in respect to that. Um, so these internet detectives, eventually she, she, she was reported missing by the family. Uh, the police are called out. They start to investigate. They, you know, they find items in the hotel room, which is, is to be honest with you, not abnormal when people leave things behind in hotel rooms. It happens quite frequently. Uh, they kept what was left behind the room. Police go through it. The police begin a search. Uh, they even search the roof. Now, at the time, uh, now, mind you, these vats are full of water, right? Uh, these water tanks are. And Elisa tragically had crawled into the, the, the water, water tank. Uh, but unbeknownst to the police who were searching the hotel at the time, they were searching the roof. And even with dogs. Now, sometimes dogs cannot pick up, <laughs> you know, uh, obviously cadaver type of signs, particularly in a, in a submerged tank that, that, that is, is completely surrounded by metal. There's several different factors about why the dog may or may not have hit upon that tank uh, with her being inside of it. Now, eventually over time passes, the police, uh, you know, they do a, a documentation, they report that she is missing. And uh, there was some complaints by some of the tenants about the water in the building, smelling funny, tasting funny. And then it got to the point where the water became a, a brownish kind of color. This prompted the hotel manager, hotel maintenance, to go up to the where the water, uh, the water tanks are located at. And he looked in the tank and he observed um, Elisa's nude body with her clothing at the bottom of the tank. And she was, uh, she was floating at this time in the water tank. Immediately, they, they, they called the police. Uh, the investigation then takes another turn uh, in respect to that. Um, now, one thing you must understand if you've ever worked cases where someone is in the process of drowning or maybe drowning, 
it is not uncommon uh, that someone will derobe or take their clothes off because it's weighing them down, right? Uh, so instinctively, that, that's the explanation for why her body was nude. Now, you can imagine how the scenario and how this is playing out to, to the armchair detectives in this case. Well, the armchair detectives take all this evidence, uh, what they perceive as being evidence, and they run with it. They run with the narrative that uh, it was Ghost who uh, forced her or convinced her to, 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 to act this way, or the Ghost killed her, took her life. And there was even accusations that, like I said earlier, that you know it was actually a, a homicide. They were pushing the narrative of it being a homicide. These armchair detectives got so involved in this case, and, and it just—it's disgusting when you see it—that they actually filmed themselves going to the hotel and retracing the steps that she took. And while they're doing this, now mind you, a young lady, a young creative mind, a young promising student is dead because tragically of, of, of her mental illness and these people are smiling on camera videoing the last steps that she took oh this is the elevator she took while they're pushing the buttons this is what she did they're so wrapped up in this case and the narrative of this case the narrative that they created and not the truth that this just it just spun out of control i think there was even one armchair detective who said that he became so emotionally invested in this case. Now, he has never met the victim. He doesn't know the victim. That he sent a friend to put his hand, take a picture of putting his hand on her tombstone. Now, <laughs> very, very odd behavior, I must say, uh, from that one particular individual they interviewed. But does my question to you, a critical question to think about, and maybe we are part of the problem because we do consume these true crime or quote unquote true crime documentaries. Are we part of the problem by consuming the product or should we have more impact or more or, or should we stress to the, to the media companies who make these these document docuseries um, to do it appropriately? Do they have a moral responsibility and how they convey cases to you. Let's say, for example, someone starts watching this docuseries. The way the docuseries unfold and the way it plays out, they may only watch two episodes out of the five, and someone has already come to their own conclusions. Now, this family, tragically, has, has lost a loved one. They have lost their daughter. Uh, and, you know, as a former detective, that, that grieving, it's just, I hope no one really has to, has to experience that themselves that they have to go through that to, to, to tell a family member that someone has died in these circumstances because it, it's a horrible, horrible experience. But regardless, um, we, we need to think about the role that all of us play, and I'm saying this even about myself, in, in how these docuseries unfold and how they gain popularity and, and how they're presented. I mean, there are detectives on these cases who come forward. They come forward on purpose. It's not because they want to be on TV. They come forward on purpose because they want to get the truth out. They, they want to make sure nothing is misinterpreted or mispresented as obviously as it happened in this docuseries. I think there was one point that a, 
a strain a strain of TB uh, similar to to this this young student's name was brought up, and I have no idea how that connected to the case at all. But they were even discussing the conspiracy around that. I just want to stress over and over again, guys, when we talk about conspiracy theories in respect to what's the simplest explanation, that is typically going to be the way forward uh, in respect to a lot of these cases. And I just hope that over time, maybe somebody who's listening to this would be interested in, in going into media studies and creating a true crime series or writing a true crime book that you realize that you cannot divorce yourself from the emotional humanity component of these cases and how you present your victims. You have a responsibility uh, in respect to the conspiracy and, and how these conspiracy theories are presented to viewers uh, in respect to that. If you created a dish that, say, for example, that um, gave someone food poisoning, right? You would be responsible. You would be criminally responsible in some cases if someone got sick from that. So what, what about the trauma that's happening to these surviving family members who are trying to grieve in their own process and the way they're going forward? I think it personally, it's absolutely disgusting. There are, there, there are cases, cold cases that still exist, thousands if not millions, that any homicide detective would love to sit down and get in the spotlight to try to get some new information to come forward. But why do we constantly stick on these cases that are, are, are clear cut? But what they're presented to in the media is not clear cut. The narrative and the agenda and how it's pushed is dangerous. So that concludes today's discussion. I was a little bit longer than my normal podcast about this particular case, but I think it's important for us to keep this in mind about our role as students in criminal justice, criminology, and also in forensic science, and, and how we contribute to this modern phenomenon of, I guess, the way we view these true crime documentaries.